everybody. It's so exciting to see you here. I don't know how your day is going, but um, my week started out with a bang. I uh, broke my ankle yesterday. So <laughs> I just decided that that old age is not something that I like very much. Nothing seems to work right. But um, I had my little grandkids around me and they were all fooling around me and saying, oh, Nana, what will we do without you? <laughs> Made me feel pretty good um, because that is what kind of what we're talking about today is the influence that we have um, in in our homes, in our communities, and because of that, the nation. So uh, today's presentation is Ladies First, and I just wanted to ask how many of you had the opportunity to watch The Invisible Woman? You guys have a chance to do that? Okay, so we... Are going to watch it. Oh, good. Gloria thought. Okay. So for those of you who haven't seen it, we're going to go ahead and, and watch it today. And I downloaded all the videos. So we should be, we should be good. Where is my share screen? Here we go. Okay. So we are going to just jump right in. This is one of my favorite presentations. And I know every time I start, I'm going to say that, but I really, really like this one because I get to talk about some pretty exceptional women. Um, so The Invisible Woman, she has a book out and it's called The Invisible Woman When Only God Sees. And I looked through all of the pictures of the cathedrals that I could find online. And this was my favorite. And when you look at this, I mean, this was when people built things because they liked to build things and and they built them because it was it was like an artistry it, they, they put their love and their passion into it when you look at all the intricate details of every single part of this building i mean you've got these these little statues here on the on the side and you've got these rings and i mean the whole entire thing is just absolutely breathtaking and then the way that the picture was done where it just goes up to the sky into the heavens it reminds me. Uh, it reminded me of the of the statue of the monument that we talked about last week. And um, monumental when when we went and saw it, and the way that we took the picture, you could see the very top of the statue pointing towards heaven. And it just it just reminded me of that that this whole cathedral is pointing towards heaven. So um, I'm just gonna show this um, video real quick here, so we can get an idea of what this cathedral has to do with us. It started to happen gradually. I would walk into a room and say something and no one would notice. I would say, turn the TV down, please. And nothing would happen. So I would get louder. Turn the TV down, please. Finally, I would have to go over and turn the TV down myself. And then I started to notice it elsewhere. My husband and I had been at a party for about three hours and I was ready to go. I looked over and he was talking to a friend from work and I walked over and he kept right on talking. He didn't even turn toward me. That's when I started to put it together. <laughs> he can't see me. <gasps> I'm invisible. I'm invisible. Then I started to notice it more and more. I would walk my son to school 
And his teacher would say, Jake, who's that with you? And my son would say, nobody. <laughs> Granted, he's just five, but nobody? One night, a group of us gathered, and we were celebrating the return of a friend from England. Janice had just taken this fabulous trip, and she was going on and on about the hotel she stayed in. And I was sitting there looking around at the other women at the table. I'd put my makeup on in the car on the way there. I had on an old dress because it was the only thing clean, and I had my unwashed hair pulled up in a banana clip, and I was feeling pretty darn pathetic. And then Janice turned to me, and she said, I brought you this. <laughs> it was a book on the great cathedrals of Europe. I didn't understand. And then I read her inscription. She wrote, with admiration for the greatness of what you are building when no one sees. You can't name the names of the people who built the great cathedrals. Over and over again, looking at these mammoth works, you scan down to find the names and it says, Builder, unknown, unknown, unknown. They completed things not knowing that anyone would notice. There's a story about one of the builders who was carving a tiny bird inside a beam that would be covered over by a roof. And someone came up to him and said, why are you spending so much time on something no one will ever see? And it's reported that the builder replied, because God sees. They trusted that God saw everything. They gave their whole lives for a work, a mammoth work, they would never see finished. They showed up day after day. Some of these cathedrals took over a hundred years to build. That was more than one working man's lifetime, day after day. And they made personal sacrifices for no credit. Showing up at a job they would never see finished for a building their name would never be on. One writer even goes so far as to say no great cathedrals will ever be built again because so few people are willing to sacrifice to that degree. I closed the book and it was as if I heard God say, I see you. You are not invisible to me. No sacrifice is too small for me to notice. I see every cupcake baked, every sequin sewn on, and I smile over everyone. I see every tear of disappointment when things don't go the way you want them to go. But remember, you are building a great cathedral. It will not be finished in your lifetime, and sadly, you will never get to live there. But if you build it well, I will. At times, my invisibility has felt like an affliction to me. But it is not a disease that is erasing my life. It is the cure for the disease of self-centeredness. It is the antidote to my own pride. It's okay that they don't see. It's okay that they don't know. I don't want my son to tell the friend he's bringing home from college you're not going to believe what my mom does. She gets up at four in the morning and she bakes pies and hand bakes a turkey and she presses all the linens. 
even if I do all those things. I don't want him to say that. I want him to want to come home. And secondly, I want him to say to his friend, you're going to love it there. It's okay that they don't see. We don't work for them. We work for him. We sacrifice for him. They will never see. Not if we do it right. Not if we do it well. Let's pray that our work will stand as a monument to an even greater God. Every time I see that, I still get choked up. I am. Um... <laughs> there are so many things that we think that why are we why are we even bothering? And when we're cleaning a toilet or wiping the once again the crayons off the walls, and <laughs> I just um, think we forget sometimes that everything that we do is building that cathedral, and every little intricate part is going to become a part of that little body and that soul. It's going to grow up to be a man, a woman, a mother, a father, a wife, a husband, someone who's going to change the world in their own little sphere. And we're building that. We're building that today. When I, um, I don't know if you had a chance to read the excerpt of uh, out of the book, Women, America's Last Best Hope, which, yes, I, I was the author. <laughs> but um, I'm going to read some of the stories of the, of the women of that time a little bit later. But I just, I wanted to read this part. Uh, it was one of the great-grandsons of Benjamin Rush, and he stated, I am afraid our forebears did not keep with accuracy the deeds of noble women in the days that truly tried the souls of both men and women. There are a lot of people who are trying to convince us, especially in the feminist movement, that women were downtrodden. And I know we talked about this before, that they were downtrodden, that they were um, held subservient to these men and it's not at all what happened. I mean, these women were courageous. They believed in freedom and, and they fought for it. And a lot of times pushed their husbands forward because they, their husbands feared for their families. And they said, get out there, we're with you. And it just the stories of these women just ignite the, the, the passion in me every time I read them. What they went through, the sacrifices that they made, the courageous acts that they carried out. I can surely do my little part. So I um, I just wanted to read some of the amazing quotes from um, some of our founding fathers. And uh, that up here. Okay. Um, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. My mother was the most beautiful woman I ever saw. George Washington. All I owe to my mother, I attribute all of my successes in life to the moral, intellectual, and physical education I received from her. That is amazing. All I am, I owe to my mother, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, all that I am or ever hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. And he talked all, also about the prayers of his mothers, and he carried his mother's prayers with him through his, through his whole entire life, the influence that she had on him. Even Napoleon Bonaparte recognized the power and influence of women. He said, let France have good mothers and she will have good sons. And Oliver Wendell Holmes, the real religion of the world comes from women, much more than from men, from mothers most of all, who carry the key of our souls in their bosoms. And then there's this beautiful little art piece here that 
I have on my wall, and you probably have seen it in thrift stores. <laughs> Mothers write on their children's heart things the world can never erase. That is so true. Even if we feel like we're losing our children, they will come back because of the seeds we've planted and the unconditional love that we continue to offer. Uh, there is, um, of course, the story of Sonia Carson. If you guys had a chance to watch Gifted Hands, what a powerful story that is. And I, I just gave um, an overview of the influence she had on her son. Uh, but I met Candy. I never had the opportunity to meet Sonia. She had passed away before I had a chance to meet her and, and Ben. But I, I've met and been able to associate on numerous occasions with Ben and Candy. And both of them continuously say what an incredible influence this woman was in, the, in, in their lives, both of their lives and the lives of their grandchildren. It's just a, a legacy that she created because of the love that she had for her sons and the commitment that she had. Even though she couldn't read, she raised brilliant, brilliant children because she insisted that they read good books. And if you read good books, you can't help but end up being having a good uh, a good foundation. So I have this and this story is in our uh, the resource guide and other people have shared it, but I have not had the opportunity to share it in person. So it's forgive me if I get a little emotional at times through this story. But this the gathering place is a place where our family went my mother's side of the family for generations. Her place is called Cowansville. It was established in, it was founded actually before 1849, but the name was changed to Cowansville in 1849 because of my great, great, great grandfather. I think it's four greats, <laughs> um, John Cowan. He was a pioneer settler and his, I think it was his father that fought in the Revolutionary War. And after the Revolutionary War, people were granted lands for the work that they gave and the service that they gave to the country. And our family was was granted a large parcel of land, which ended up becoming Cowansville. A lot of it they sold off, but Cowansville is still this little town outside of Catanning on the Allegheny River, about an hour north of Pittsburgh. And it's it's where I ended up actually going to high school later in life. But I my family moved all over the country for years from the time I was born until I graduated from high school. Um, my dad would just would just move. He would move because he got another job or because of church service. And in fourth grade, I was I attended four different elementary schools. By the time I graduated from high school, I had attended 26 schools. 26 schools. I can't how how, how do you even how do you even uh, figure that out? But it was it, it was a lot of moving. And um, there was one place that was always the constant in my life. So while we did move a lot, the only time we moved outside of Pennsylvania was when I was eight years old. We moved to Maryland for a year and then back to Pennsylvania. Outside of that, my whole first 18 years of my life were spent in Pennsylvania. So the one place that was my stability, my constant, was Cowansville. And every summer I would go and I would spend three, six weeks during the summer with my great grandma, Jessie. She lived in the pastor's house that was right by 
the um there I am little Kimmy <laughs> she lived in the pastor's house and there was the church was was like center of the whole community and the pastor's house was just to the right of the church when you're looking forward there and I remember being in those pews and showing up to church in my little fancy dresses and pinafores and all the things that they did back in the early 70s and I I just those little red doors there I would take this the stroller that I had my grandmother gave me a stroller and I I put the her, my baby dolls in there and I go up and one red door was was one house and the other red door was a shop and I just take my 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 dolls all around there this is where I went for bible school every summer I would go to this church I would go there every Sunday for Sunday school and and services and it just became a part of me um, my mother, my grandmother's uh, house had a porch on, on the front with a porch swing. And I remember sitting on that porch swing and watching all the traffic going up and down the road, heading up, especially during the summer months when they were heading to the, the big park um, that was, it was a, it was a, a country paradise park is what it was called. And they had all these country shows during the summer. And that's where I met Minnie Pearl and um, a bunch of the people from Hee Haw. <laughs> it was just, it just, there was just something about this place. Across the street from the church was my grandpa's or my uncle George's store. It looks a little bit different in this picture than it did when I was growing up. When I was growing up, it had a porch that went all the way across and there was a bench right in front of the window. And that was where the, the older men from the community would sit and chew their tobacco and smoke their cigars, whatever they did. And I still remember that bell when you would ring the bell and you'd walk into the store and it just smelled like old wood. And at the back of the store was the post office where my aunt Rose and my uncle George delivered the post office, delivered the mail. And everybody had a post office box and it was like the flurry of the town. Everybody came and visited. And on the left side there, the, the left part of the, of the store was a house. And that was the house where my aunt Rose lived until until she moved uh, to another part of town. This is where our family grew up. This is where our heritage was. This is the house that my uh, my uncle, uh, my, my uh, grandparents built. My great grandma lived here on this property and she had an old wooden house that they had to um, tear down after some time because it was it was rotting. And she gave the property to my grandfather and he built this house and it became the new gathering place where people came and, and visited. This was when they tore down my grandmother's house. This is my great grandmother and my great grandfather. And this is them with their many children. And in front of the house, there are 12 trees, 12 pine trees. And each one of those pine trees was, was planted for each one of their children. So depending on how, when how old the child was, depended on how old the how long the tree was there. But every time a child was born, they built these, they put these trees there. And when they built the house, they made sure and built the house behind the trees so that they could still see the trees along the roadside. And it reminded everybody of the the family. And it was always about family. Several of my uncles fought in World War II, including my grandfather and my grandmother. And they have would sit around and tell the stories of America and, and why they believed in the patriotism and the courage that they 
that they mustered through those difficult times. There's already just always something going on. And my aunt Helen, um, this is my grandma Jessie, and I'm in my aunt Helen's house. My aunt Helen's house uh, was also a gathering place. The whole town was a gathering place. We would go to my great grandma's house. We would go to my aunt Helen's house. But aunt Helen's house was really the place everybody just kind of came and gathered because she had the biggest house. And she had an organ in the front room. And I remember sitting there and listening to her just play this organ, everything from gospel songs to um, country songs. And I I knew every one of the, the songs. Oh, I can't remember. Isn't it? Kenny Rogers. I knew every Kenny Rogers song by heart. And I would sit there at the base of the organ and I would just sing, you picked a fine time to leave me loose. I had no idea what I was singing, but I would just sit there and I would sing and sing and sing. And all the family would gather and they'd all bring food and we'd have, we'd have holidays there and picnics there. And on her front porch, she had this, this beautiful front porch with these two big porch swings that people would just come and sit and gather and talk. And around the corner, she had these little uh, white wrought iron, like chairs and tables right around the current bushes. And I would sit there. I had so many tea parties there. It was literally a magical time for me. I I I loved it. Um, this was my uh, this is my great grandma's house right here behind my cousin, and um, this again is the house uh, that my um, that my grandmother grandfather had had built. And I I just this was everything about this was just a part of me. With all the moving and everything that happened, this was the the stability that I had every summer. This was a part of who I was when my um, children got older. We had an opportunity to go back and visit Cowansville. My grandmother passed away in the late 70s, and I was devastated because she was such an integral part of my life. But she um, she left a legacy that everybody you know held on to. And my aunt Helen kind of carried on the torch after she passed away. And I remember the first time we were able to go back, it was actually, it was just my husband and I, the first time we went back and my, we, my aunt Helen was still there. And when I, when I started to drive through, my mother called me on the phone and she said, um, have you made it to Cowansville yet? And I said, no. And she said, well, I need to prepare you. Um, grandma's house has been torn down and, and it now is part of the, the, the church property. And I'm like, why would they do that? And I came into town and sure enough, my grandmother's house was just gone. There was nothing but a big grass field and a pavilion with a picnic table. And I was like, just like was lost. And my uncle's store, it had been, he had sold it. They, he and his wife had gone to Florida <laughs> and the post office had bought the whole entire uh, building and they, the store was gone. They just turned the whole thing in the front, front, front of it into a post office in the back of it was just storage and and everything that you couldn't smell the the wood anymore but the bell didn't ring when you opened the door and it was just like all the memories were just like was like shattered but my aunt helen was still there and i was like okay so i went and visited my aunt helen my husband and i got to meet her and and it was it was something to hold on to and then we went and visited the homestead and so then um a few years later we went back again and Every time I was anywhere near Pennsylvania, we went back and I went back with my children and my aunt Helen had passed away a couple of years before. Hello. Hello. 
Sorry, you hearing me okay? Okay. So my Aunt Helen had passed away and the people who had bought the house, something had happened and the house caught on fire and it burned to the ground. And so when I went to go visit my Aunt Helen's house, my mom forgot to tell me it wasn't there. And then all the houses that were leading up to the church were all gone. It was like the whole town. It was totally different. And I brought in my children and I'm, I'm, I'm showing them. I'm like, oh, come and look at the, come and look at the church. Come and look at the store. And I'm telling them what the store used to look like and, and where I used to play in the church. And they're like, yeah, okay. Um, can we go now? We're hungry. And our family cemetery was right behind the, the church. I'm like, no, let's go. Let's go see. Let's go see grandma's grave. And they're like, yeah, we're not interested. And they're running all through the, the graveyard. And I'm like, stop running. This, <laughs> And they don't, I, and it, I, I couldn't understand why are why do they not understand how how important this place is? Why do they not realize how significant it is in, in my life, in our lives? And then it hit me. I never told them the stories. I never told them the stories of the tea parties on the on the little table and chairs. I never told them about the times that I played on the on the church front porch or or saying at the base of my aunt Helen's keyboard and organ, they, they didn't know. I had no idea the significance of this place. And that's when I realized the only way my children are going to know our history and our heritage, the significance of this place is if I tell them. And so I started to tell them stories of all their aunts and their uncles and and a Paradise Park and Win Mini Pearl, <laughs> all the things that I had seen and I'd done and why it was so important to me. And then a couple of years ago, we were able to go back and my children are you know, mostly grown. And I only had a couple of the older ones with me and the grandchildren. And we went to the front of the, of the church and there were all these bricks that had been donated, $50 a brick. And you can put your brick into this walkway and it would have people's names. And my my grandmother and grandfather's names were there. And great grandma Jessie was there. And I was like, I want to be there. And my kids were like, mom, mom, we should buy bricks and we should put our family there. And they knew. <laughs> I suddenly realized, you know, after all those stories I told it, it, it worked. And they understood the powerful influence of that place in our lives, of the history and the heritage that it is. And now every time our family or anybody, any of my children get anywhere near Pennsylvania, they're like, we want to go to Callensville. And just all you do is drive through. <laughs> and you see all the things that don't even belong to us anymore. My nan and Pap-Pap's house that my grandma and grandpa, the house has been sold. And every time we go by and, and we just say hi to the woman who lives there, she always makes it very clear. I'm not giving it back. I'm not selling it. <laughs> she loves the house. But it was so it was so important, significant in our lives. And then I started to think about our own history and our heritage as a country. And if we're not sharing that light of liberty with them, then they don't understand how powerful this is. What is the history of our country? That's our heritage. No matter how we got here, no matter when we came here, we all become part of that history and that heritage. And the only way our children are going to know it is if we share it with them. There is a concerted effort to try and take that away from us. Uh, I'm going to share the screen here again real quick. Um, oh, 
This is just one more picture of my home. That's my mom right there, the beauty queen. <laughs> um, there is a convention that happens every year at the United Nations, and it's called the Commission on the Status of Women. And they have all these women who meet from around the world, and they the, the goal of this convention is to come out with a document of agreed conclusions. It is not law, but they consider it soft law because once they have these agreed conclusions, they then take that document back to all their countries and it becomes starts to become policy. So all of the things that if you are familiar with Phyllis Schlafly and all the work that she did to fight against ERA and all the things that are happening in our country right now, when the feminists lost ERA, they took it to the United Nations and then they brought it back. They brought it back through this document of agreed conclusions. And it started to be put into our policies within our federal government, all the way down to our school boards. It started to infiltrate our whole entire society. Well, in 2017, the goal, the whole objective of the conference was to redefine motherhood as unpaid work that needs to be recognized, reduced, and redistributed. And around the same time, um, the wife of um, uh, Bill Gates, Bill Gates's wife, uh, came out and, and wrote in their annual report of their foundation all about women and how if, if mothers had an opportunity to, to work outside the home, because they, that motherhood, she reiterated that motherhood was unpaid work. And if they had the opportunity to do something significant, like work outside the home or go to school, but then they would have an opportunity to be a, a, an actual con contributing member of society. Well, the mothers at the UN that year just about had a conniption and they were like, uh, no, you are not going to belittle us and, and marginalize us as unpaid work. And if it's recognized, reduced, and redistributed, who gets to decide who redistributes it? And who does it get redistributed to? I mean, this is all an effort to get rid of the whole idea of mothers. And for years, the UN tried to get rid of this, this whole conference, tried to get rid of Mother's Day, because they said it was offensive. And so if we, if we weren't significant, if we weren't a powerful influence, then they wouldn't be working so hard to try and get rid of us. Well, after this uh, conference in 2017, we decided that we needed to do something to take a stand and to counter their message. And so we drafted, after a lot of going back and forth, what should be in this document, nine paragraphs of awesome called the Declaration of Mothers. And the Declaration of Mothers is very clearly talks about how we have the influence of, of, of our children and we are the ones who are creating a nation and that all of the or the entities, the government organizations, churches, all of these things are there to support us, not replace us, regulate us or restrict us like they're trying to do today. And that there is no, there's no government institution or program that can replace the family no matter how well it designed or organized it is. The family is the center of our society and it was supposed to be that way. So this is um, part of the 
This is just a section of the Declaration of Mother's Home. We declare that the liberty and freedom of all people begin in the home and that a nation is but a magnified home. The values and virtues taught within the family will determine the values and virtues of the nation as a whole. Mothers, we recognize the sacred role of mother as the heart of the home and home as the heart of society. The liberty of each individual begins in the home and parents are first and foremost the primary teachers and protectors of the children, of their children in a free society and the community's role. Properly constructed social, religious, and governmental institutions are designed to support and strengthen the family unit, not replace it or regulate it. No association or government organization can replace the family, no matter how well-intentioned or well-designed it may be. So this was a very powerful document and we didn't realize just how powerful when we wrote it, but after all of these crazy things that have happened in, in our country, uh, it, it is, it is, um, I don't know, kind of prophetic that it exists and uh, very exciting that it not only exists, but it was in 2018, it was entered into the congressional record. So they can call us birthing people and chest feeders all they want. Moms are in the congressional record and uh, no administration can get rid of that. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, I wanted to just read a couple of the um, stories. There's a, there's a there's a couple of books I want to tell you about. One of them is Patriots and Petticoats. I love this book, and you'll be hard pressed to find it because every time it comes on, um, and any every time it comes on Amazon or I find it anywhere, I I buy it. So now if you go and try to find it on Amazon, it's like a hundred and $50. Actually, the last time I looked, I think it was $785 for one of the copies that was there. But uh, we are working really hard. The woman who wrote this book is in her 80s, and we're trying to convince her to let us to reprint it so it doesn't go away. There's another book called Patriots and Petticoats by another author that was written in the 80s, but it is not anywhere near as good. And it doesn't herald the women like this one does. This one, Patriots and Petticoats, was by Patricia Edwards Klein, and she wrote it in the 1960s. And it is a beautiful book that talk, has all the stories of the different women patriots, the mothers. And then it has at the end of each story, it says, what can you see today? So Hannah Hendy's story is in here. And my husband and I were able to go and see her um, monument in Vermont. And she's one of my great heroes. So I just want to read some of the just a few of the stories if you had a, had a, if you have not had a chance to read the excerpt from women america's best less best hope which is the um, influence of women um you can find these stories and others in that chapter excerpt but i'm just going to read a, a couple of my favorites so um i'm going to start with elizabeth ensley lewis elizabeth ensley lewis was the wife of francis lewis a signer of the declaration of independence like the other signers francis was considered an outlaw by the british and a price was put on his head but the british did not limit their efforts to the capture of francis alone very soon after the british troops were in possession of long island a british captain was sent with several soldiers to francis's home the captain was ordered to seize lewis's wife and destroy their property as the soldiers advanced on one side of Elizabeth's home, a British warship from the other side fired upon her house. Mrs. Lewis looked calmly on. A shot from the vessel struck the board on which she stood. One of her servants cried, run, mistress, run, to which Mrs. Lewis replied, another shot is not likely to hit the same spot. 
Mrs. Lewis remained standing immovable as the British soldiers entered her, entered her house, destroyed books, papers, and pictures, and ruthlessly breaking up furniture and anything else in their path. Then, after they finished pillaging the house, they took Mrs. Lewis with them. Elizabeth was carried to New York and thrown into prison where she was not allowed a bed or a change of clothing and was given barely enough food to survive. Oh, sorry. Okay, go away. Go away. Go away. Go away. Go away. Her husband, Francis, lived for 20 years. Oh, she, I'm sorry, but Mrs. Lewis had become... Uh, because of her situation, Mrs. Lewis had become very ill from the experience, and soon after being released, she died from the mistreatment and illnesses she sustained in prison. Her husband, Francis, lived lived without her for 24 more years. He never remarried, but lived to know the high and lonely price of an American patriot. This mother's story went on for generations and inspired Several generations after her, they talked about this, the courage of this woman and an, an inspired a patriotism and children and grandchildren that came that came after them. Hannah Hendy, as you know, one of my very favorites. Uh, Hannah Hendy was a mother of two small children, a little boy and a baby. In 1780, a messenger um, oh, during that time. In, in in this time of history, uh, they had the Indians would come through the town and they would. Um, they would clear a town and and take whatever they wanted and take women and children as as their pay because they were working for the British soldiers. And they had a messenger that was appointed to each town. When the raiders came, that messenger would jump on his horse and go alert the next town. So in 1780, a messenger from the neighboring Vermont town where Hannah and her husband lived with their two small children came to warn them that the Indians were raiding the area under the leadership of the British army. Hannah's town was next in their path. Hannah's husband told her to take their young son and baby to a neighbor's house and hide there until the raiders' raids were over. He then rode out to warn the next town. On the way to the neighbor's house, Hannah was overcome by a band of Indians who rode by and ripped her seven-year-old son, Michael, right from her hands. Hannah, holding her daughter in her arms, immediately ran after the vicious mob that stole her son, but they were too fast for her. Resolute in her mission to rescue her son, Hannah followed the Indians' path of destruction and burning homes until she finally reached the British camp where they had originated. Hannah's son and several other boys were huddled together in the encampment, surrounded by several Indians. Hannah, upon finding the British officer in charge, walked up to him and demanded the release of her son. The officer, Lieutenant Horton, explained that the boys were the payment to the Indians and that they would not be killed, but taken to Canada and trained to become Indian warriors. No child will be able to endure a long trek like that to Canada, Hannah cried. They will die before they reach there. Have you no mercy? Have the British become such savages that they murder children? Hannah then pleaded, give me my son. Don't let him die. Lieutenant Horton finally relinquished her son, but Hannah didn't stop there. She also demanded the release of every one of those boys who had been stolen from their families in the raids. Horton finally relented and allowed Hannah to take all the boys. Still holding her baby in her arms, Hannah pulled the small, scared, and crying boys in around her skirts and walked them back to the town where they had re where they reunited with their families. This is, is an amazing story. And then there's the story of Lydia Dara. 
who saved the George Washington's army from, from being captured. And there were several women who were able to do this, some with tea parties and crumpets. Um, Lydia Darrow was a homemaker and Quaker woman who single-handedly saved Washington's army from ambush. Lydia's home was used by the British army to house its officers. One night, one of the British officers who was stationed in her house ordered Lydia to see that her family was in bed asleep by a certain hour and to admit General Howe very quietly. She was to show the general to the officer's apartment and then be ready to show him out just as quietly when he was ready to go. Lydia was suspicious and felt there might be some treacherous act in place. So after General Howe was safely in the officer's apartment, Lydia took off her shoes, crept softly downstairs, and listened at the keyhole. There she heard the two men plan to surprise Washington and take his whole army. Lydia slipped away from the door, went trembling back to the room. The next day, Lydia got a pass from General Howe. That part really irritates me. She had to get a pass from the general who had taken over her house to go and get something. Sorry, I digress. The next day, Lydia got a pass from General Howe to go to the mill and get some flour ground. The mill was outside the lines of British Army in Philadelphia. Lydia carried her bag for 25 miles. 25 miles she carried the bag, walking straight to the outpost of the Patriot Army, where she met an American officer and told him of General Howe's plans. When General Howe's army reached White Marsh to surprise Washington's army, they found the American army so well prepared to receive them that they turned around and marched right back again without striking a blow. Lydia Darrow's heroic act may have saved the entire colonial army. These are just some of the incredible stories of these women, stories that you will never hear in, in, um, in um, unfortunately. But if we can tell those stories to our children, then they will, they will pierce their hearts. Okay, so... Um, this is, uh, okay, we're going to read this quote by Henrik Ibsen. It has always seemed to me that the great problem is to elevate the nation and place it on a higher level. Two factors, the man and the woman, must cooperate for this end, and it lies especially with the mothers of the people by slow and strenuous work. To arouse in it a conscious sense of culture and discipline, to the women, then, we must look for the solution of the problem of humanity. It must come from them as mothers. That is the mission that lies before them. Um, big, big, big shoulders, right? We, we got this. Abigail Adams. John Quincy Adams said of his mother, my mother was the daughter of a Christian clergyman and therefore bred in the faith of deliberate detestation of war. Yet in that same spring and summer of 1775, she taught me to repeat daily after the Lord's Prayer and before rising from bed, the ode of Collins on the Patriot Warriors. I well recollect going into the kitchen and seeing some of the men engaged in running pewter spoons into bullets for the use of the troops. Do you wonder that a boy of seven years of age who witnessed this scene should be a Patriot? And I love, love this quote. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We will preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we will sentence them to take the first step into a thousand years of darkness. If we fail, at least let our children and our children's children say of us, we justified our brief moment here. We did all that could be done. 
Um, let's see. Let me come back to that one. Uh, a couple more books I want to I want to share with you. Um, the Five Thousand Year Leap is one of the core books that we use in our um, in our cottage meetings, and Principle Eight is the one that is highlighted in this presentation. And the title of it is Men Are Endowed by Their Creator with Certain Inalienable Rights. And when you read through it, it talks about how the family is the center of, of, of society and mothers are the center of the home. So everything that's being created and generated, whatever America will look like, we're determining it right now in our homes. And, and the principle number eight talks about how exactly what it says in the, in the Declaration of Mothers, that these organizations are there to support us. And that our rights are inalienable, that we have a divine inherent right to teach, nurture, and raise our children. And the government cannot replace us no matter how much they try. And no one is going to love our children as much as we do. Um, another book, of course, is Women America's Last Best Hope. And then there is um, Promises in the Constitution. And these are the core books that we use every time we, we do these presentations. And you don't have to use them all with every presentation. But I did want to just read a um, vignette 13.6 in Promises of the Constitution. We can strengthen our nation and receive divine help as we exercise our faith, activate our hope, and practice charity. We must believe that it is possible to restore our Constitution and regain its original peace and prosperity this requires faith. Then we must accept divine help, expect divine help. That expectation is hope. As we believe and expect change, we will step forward and do our part to make it happen. When we do so with kindness and love for others, in the name of moral principles, we practice charity. It seems like really simple principles, but the world is completely turned away from all of these things. And um, there's a Let's see, I'm going to pull this up because there's a quote. Uh, okay. E.T. Sullivan um, wrote a book years ago, and this is one of the quotes from his book. We fancy that God can only manage his world with battalions, when all the while he is doing it by beautiful babies. When a wrong wants writing or a truth needs practicing, or a continent once opening, God sends a baby into the world, perhaps into a simple, small home and of some obscure mother. And then God puts the idea into the mother's heart and she puts it into the baby's mind. And then God waits. The greatest forces in the world are not earthquakes and thunderbolts. The greatest forces in the world are babies. And with that... I want to share with you a song we did a few years ago. to read. 
that phrase lightly, the future of America truly is in our hands. When I, when I broke my ankle yesterday, I'm sitting on the bed and my little grandkids come up and jump on the bed very carefully because they want to hurt me. And they said, Nana, what are we going to do without you? I thought, this is the powerful influence that we are. We as women, mothers, grandmothers, 
We are touching hearts. We are changing lives. We are building a nation of patriots, of people who love God and have faith and, and love their family. If we can instill this in the hearts of our children, they will not worry about what gender they are. They will already know. They will not worry about who they're supposed to be. They'll follow the path. We can help them navigate through the storms, whether they're physical storms, emotional storms, mental storms. We are the rocks. We are the ones that can help them. And we are the ones that are shaping the future. So that is our presentation for today. And I will end it with this. What I started with. Children are the living messages we send to the world we will not see. What messages are we sending? And then remember this. Mothers write on the hearts of their children. Things the world can never erase. So for next week, um, we have our next presentation. Uh, why aren't you going away? There we go. Sorry. There we go. Um, so home assignments from this week's presentation, if you have time, um, to read a women's influence chapter excerpt. There are many more stories of these great, great women. And it also talks about how the feminists have worked so hard. This whole feminist movement has worked very, very hard to discredit us as mothers and get us out of the way because they fear us. We stand in the way of what they want, which is our children. So um, lots of good stuff in that chapter excerpt. Uh, optional books and movies, as I mentioned, Patriot and Petticoats. Great if you can find it. And it is at $700. Awesome. Hopefully we'll get to reprint that book and you can't have mine. Uh, it Takes a Mother to Raise a Village. Another great book that is out of print, but you can usually find that one periodically. We used to have it on our store, but it's all been bought out. Great, great, great book. And of course, Gifted Hands, the film um, about Ben Carson. Next week's presentation is, is a Foundation of Faith. So uh, if you have an opportunity, um, Please watch the video series, Fires of Faith, uh, and or read the article, Born Free. And um, Hannah will be able to get that. Hannah, your trustee, will get that over to you so that you have the links to be able to watch those. Okay. Well, I want to thank you all for being here. Mm -hmm.